0: We said a number of weeks ago that our soul is often neglected because we don't understand it. We understand that we have a physical body and we tend to its needs accordingly. We understand that we have a mind and we attend to our intellect accordingly. But we said our soul is the quarterback of what makes me, me. And it's a word used many, many times in scripture. It runs my emotions, my body, uh, my body language rather, my facial expressions, my will, and even my thoughts. We said last week that the soul is created to be needy. We have needy souls. That we have an infinite capacity for pleasure. We can't get enough of it. We're all pleasure addicts bouncing from uh, food to trying to find pleasure in food to Netflix to a nap to fulfilling relationships to a more fulfilling vocation. And then we hit the reset button and repeat over and over again. We can't help ourselves. Our souls were created to orbit around something other than ourselves. We are not self-sufficient. We are made to enjoy life. We're made to enjoy something. In fact, you can substitute the word worship with the word enjoy. So we can't get enough pleasure, and God, the author of pleasure, can't give us enough because he's a giver. It's the perfect marriage. So, from last week, a question for you. What is the ultimate purpose of our lives? To enjoy God. What is the purpose that we're to wake up to tomorrow morning? Enjoy God. What's the purpose that we're to have every moment of every day? Enjoy God. You guys don't sound like you're enjoying much right now, but it's like, enjoy God. If I were to put on my coach's hat right now, I would be like throwing this out in the crowd. Like, No, I, I won't, though. I won't. Uh, that's a backhanded rebuke, just like what Kimball gave about the clapping. That was the most obvious backhanded rebuke I've ever heard in my life. So I liked it. It was good. So Psalm 63, verse 1, this has been our anchor passage for this series. It says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek for you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and perished land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I'll lift up my hands. I'll be fully satisfied as with the riches of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you're my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. This is not talking about a stuffy religious service, is it? This isn't talking about a set of moral expectations, is it? It's talking about a deep, rich, passionate relationship with the one who fulfills the desires that he places in our hearts. Wouldn't you know what it's like to long for God? Other translations say, I faint with longing for you. Wouldn't you don't you want to know what it's like to faint because of how much you long for God? I would love to enjoy he whose love is better than life. Some of us, if we're honest, we're having a serious conversation with ourselves during this series. And if you're like me, I think the conversation goes something like this. If God is the author of pleasure with an inexhaustible capacity to give, and I have a, the, the ceaseless ability to receive more and more pleasure, then why is it so painfully difficult and often seemingly impossible to enjoy the Lord? Why do I know in my head that he's the author of joy and then go to so many other things when I'm really looking for for joy, for an escape, for pleasure? That's the purpose of tonight. Last week's intent was to establish what it means to find pleasure in Jesus. This week, the focus is to be honest about the internal argument we're having with ourselves, to acknowledge the obstacles, or you could say the enemies, to enjoying God. To start, I have to get real with you guys. I have to confess that I get frustrated with my brokenness. I wonder sometimes, why do I get jealous of other pastors who are doing the Lord's work? I mean, if there was ever an example of we're all on the same team, it's that. Why do I have such an insatiable, insane desire to win? Why do I have a secret loneliness that creeps up on me at some times that no amount of relationships or accomplishments can touch? Why do I feel like one more accomplishment, one more goal achieved will finally get me to a place where I'll be able to find rest? In other words, I often hang my head in disgust and wonder why I don't always practice what I preach and truly and deeply enjoy the Lord. Because the best gift I can give you and the best gift you can give me is simply to enjoy the Lord. Did you know that? That's the best gift we can give one another, to be ones who enjoy the Lord. I mean, I know what Jesus says, and so do many of you in Mark, uh, chapter 8, verse 36. Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? You know, for many years, I thought that Jesus was only saying here, really in so many words, hey, if you soak up all the world has to offer, but you don't have me, then you're going to be separated from me for all eternity after you die. Is it really worth it? I thought that's all he was saying. But I think that it's only part of the intent of this question. I think the question also is to probe our pursuit of satisfaction, saying that it will be fruitless if Christ is not the object of your pleasure-seeking. He is saying, even if you own the whole world, you won't be satisfied. Even if you have all the money that Bill Gates has, you won't be satisfied. Even if you have Uh, you know, a deeper romantic relationship than anything you might read in a novel, then you won't be satisfied. Now, I believe that Jesus here is certainly talking about our eternal destiny, but he's also talking to his disciples here and talking about where we find our sense of satisfaction. To to, To attempt satisfaction without Christ is like having a boat but no water. You can own the nicest yacht in the world and pretend that you're boating, but you'll just look like a fool. You're not boating unless there's water. We're not really finding true and lasting pleasure that will build and develop and encourage our soul unless we find it in Christ. You see, Jesus dives in deeper when he shares the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. You can turn there if you want. Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. says, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. I want to stop there. Isn't it crazy how often Jesus just gets out and he finds some solitude? The Savior of the world goes and finds solitude. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it. While all the people people stood on the shore, then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. A little later in the same chapter, Jesus explains this parable in verse 18. He says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom of God and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, because of the world, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. If the soil is cluttered with rocks and weeds, it won't grow healthy plants. If our souls are cluttered with busyness and anxiety over our circumstances, if they're cluttered with sin, then we cannot find enjoyment. We will continually try to fill our pleasure reservoirs with more and more The enemy's goal is to busy us with a dogged determination to find satisfaction, to find pleasure outside of Christ. You see, James 1.8 says that the person who does not live in Christ is double-minded. And actually, this term, double-minded, means a fractured soul. Our souls are broken, so broken that we do stuff we know we shouldn't do. And we don't do stuff that we know we should do every day. We have the breathtaking privilege of being in Christ, but if we're honest, it feels like our lives are often empty of Christ exalting pleasure and filled with anxiety, fear, and simply enduring the daily grind, but not resting in the pleasure giver. If we're real with ourselves, we struggle to be satisfied in the most satisfying relationship. We struggle to be intimate with the author of love and passion and desire. We're often at a loss as to why we lack courage with the line of Judah at our side. And with that in mind, I hope that we're all kind of sharing in this tension that we feel, that we have access to the pleasure giver, but we often don't go there. So I think this can help us determine a few things. We're going to do an exercise together. Uh, Can you guys take out a piece of paper? It can be your bulletin. You got a, a pen next to you there, your phone, your journal, your person sitting in front of you, you could write on their neck, just ask them not to move, and then you could take a picture of it after you do that so that you can have it with you tomorrow. Uh, So write this down. If Jesus is blank, why am I so blank? Write those two, write them down. If Jesus is blank, why am I so blank? You might write down, if Jesus is to be enjoyed, why do I often seem so bored in my faith? Or if Jesus' love is better than life, why am I so lonely? Or if Jesus is my peace, then why am I always so anxious? So go ahead and fill in these blanks for yourselves. I'll, I'll give you a minute. If Jesus is blank, why am I so blank? So it's a positive. Jesus is so, a positive attribute, why am I so? A negative attribute. Some of you aren't doing it, and then that hurts my feelings. You've got 13 more seconds. I want to encourage all of us to take that question seriously. I think you'll see why. You see, the second blank you filled in, why am I so blank? That blank is what the enemy's using as arrows to pierce our soul and separate us from the joy giver. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against what? Your soul. The enemy is fine with us saying, God is love and so I'm loved. Or I don't have to worry because God is sovereign over my life and he's in control. He's fine with that as long as they're just truisms, as long as they remain in the theoretical and outside of the practical. So if you filled in the blank, if Jesus sticks closer than a brother, why am I so lonely? The enemy's cool with us saying that Jesus sticks closer than a brother as long as we don't taste and see that he's good, as long as we don't experience him as a deeply satisfying, the most deeply satisfying, richest relationship in our life, as long as he's just up here, as long as he can get us to choose other things to fill that loneliness vacuum, even with good things like kids, marriage, and friendship, then we've yet to see the real joy giver because the enemy loves closet agnostics. That is, truisms without taking in and walking in the truth, the belief that God is to be enjoyed but never actually going to him for enjoyment. Many of us go to him religiously because it's what we should do, But the litmus test is when we're seeking out pleasure, where do we go? These hindrances to pleasure in God are what counselors and psychologists would call addictions, but the Bible calls it idolatry. Author and pastor Timothy Keller says, idolatry is the sin beneath the sin. And he explains it, I'm allowing some competing desire to have higher priority than God in God's will for my life. That means that in that moment, I have to put something on a pedestal higher than God and that something is my idol. All sin involves idolatry. And Keller's right on there. We all commit idolatry every day. It's the sin of the soul meeting its needs with anything that distances us from God. So another exercise, get out your little piece of paper there or grab your neighbor's hair like this and ask them to be still. Uh, You're going to fill in another blank, so get ready, and this should be up on the screen. I love the Lord, and I want to get closer to him, but there is this thing that always seems to get in the way, and it's blank. I love the Lord, and I want to get closer to him, but there's this thing that always seems to get in the way, and it's blank. It could be unhealthy relationships, greed, workaholism, porn, or whatever, but write that thing down now. You guys can go back to these, but I'm going to give you nine seconds. So the first exercise where I had you write down, if Jesus is blank, then why do I feel so blank? That second blank in the first exercise, again, why do I feel so blank, highlights our soul sickness. The symptoms, if you will, of the poison that we're feeding our soul. That poison is an idol. So if I say, if Jesus sticks closer than a brother, then why do I feel so lonely? My loneliness comes from that second exercise. It comes from my idol. If I'm going to... And let me explain what I mean. I've gone to other things to fill the shelf on my soul's cabinet labeled pleasurable relationships. Okay? Okay? And I've tried to find ultimate intimacy in other people instead of Christ. So I have this idol in my life. I know that Jesus sticks closer than a brother. Why do I feel so lonely? And uh, the thing that seems to always be getting in the way of my closer relationship with Jesus could be seeking out my ultimate desire for intimate, pleasurable relationships in other people instead of Christ. So my loneliness comes from my idol which is I'm not going to Jesus for pleasure. And those other things and other people were never designed to provide ultimate pleasure. So our loneliness, our sense of purposelessness, our anxiety, our worry, it all comes from these idols. That's why these blanks are so important. I come back to these often in my own life when I'm stirred up, when I know things just are not right in me, I look at these. So let's unpack the enemies of enjoying the Lord with a little more specificity here. So we've already pretty much made this point, but the first, the enemy to enjoyment is anything that gets in the way of enjoying the Lord. But like any pastor, even though I've already made the point, I'm going to keep talking about it a little more, and then I'm going to move on to another point. Um, It's because we only listen, you guys only listen to about 2.4% of what I say. So I basically just say the whole, the same thing over and over in a sermon, and Then we get I mean, I'm the same way. We're all that way. Um, So don't feel bad. The fourth step of the great recovery program, Alcoholics Anonymous, is to make a fearless moral inventory. We're all addicts of one thing or another, our, our idols, maybe to alcohol or Netflix or our phone or sex or even religion, religion itself. We must ask ourselves, will this situation that I'm engaging in right now block my connection with God? Or another way to ask that, what situations am I regularly putting myself in where my soul's connection with God is being blocked? I'm not finding pleasure in Him. Let me tell you of one of mine, and I'm embarrassed about it because it sounds real silly, okay? Many of you may have heard that I am somewhat of a fan of baseball. And that at times... I like to tell stories about baseball. Many of you make fun of that even, and I know you do that, and I love you anyway. You're going to hear another baseball story. So uh, i got to be careful. i got to make sure I don't share names here, so I'm going to kind of stick to what I've written down here. Uh, so I've been around baseball since I was three years old, playing in my parents' front yard as soon as I could walk. And, and then as a player, and then I've been coaching my boys for over 10 years now. I just love it. And what started with T-Ball and Rec League has now become travel baseball. As as they grow, their, their commitment grows and the level of competition grows. So some of the boys in our small community, I've coached for years. And that's a good thing for the most part. You know, I know these guys get to see them grow up, but remember I said that it's a good thing for the most part. The other not so good part is that many of them have been on my team for way too long. Uh, some drive me nuts with drama, complaining, and other such behaviors that are typical of the early teen years. So this last week, I became quite frustrated with a young man on my team. I won't get into the details, but I had told him to—I ex- had encouraged him to execute a play with some great hustle. And the way I describe it to these guys over and over is, "Hey, this was an outfielder. That's the only hint I'm going to give you in case you ever come to a game." hey, you need to run to back up that base as if your hair is on fire and the baby pool is right behind third base. I had just given this beautiful illustration that I thought was really good. And they always chuckle at it. And then so I hit a fly ball, and it's like he's running in quicksand while playing on a, a game on his phone, while allowing an elephant to ride on his shoulders. I mean, it was incredibly, incredibly painfully slow. So when he came into the dugout and was waiting to move into some hitting drills, uh, we had a conversation. Uh, We had a conversation. And then he started, because of the nature of this conversation, he started to complain about me to other team members, including my son. So I began, and then it got back to me, of course, it always does, they don't know that. So I began to reflect on this young man's behavior. And my mind begins to spin with all the reasons that he's less than enjoyable. Number one, he does not hustle. (laughs) Number two, he's lazy, like the first. Number three, he's a bad influence on some of the other players. Number four, he has a filthy mouth. Number five, he is extremely angry. Number six, he complains with said character problems when I address him with those issues. Number seven, I am the only coach of our three coaches who wanted to keep him. We had tryouts several years ago. All the others wanted to cut him. Uh, But I didn't keep him because we needed him. I kept him because I wanted to show him the love of Christ. Because I feel like the Spirit led me to keep him. But that's hard to... Keep in mind when said player is not running like their hair is on fire and the baby pool is behind third base, but rather like they're walking through quicksand with an elephant on their shoulders while playing Fortnite on their phone. Uh, So, But I couldn't stop thinking about this kid and how angry he made me and how I had invested in him and sacrificed for him and all he did is complain and continue to be lazy why isn't the Chris Old Character Development baseball camp helping this boy grow into a man? Why doesn't he get with the program? I mean, I should be his hero. I'm the guy that's keeping him off the cover of High Times Magazine five years from now. And so it was really getting in the way of my connection with the Lord. And here is an opportunity for me to find enjoyment in the Lord. To say, Lord, I want to be recognized as this young man's hero for all that I've done for him really more than I want you. Please help me to enjoy you when I interact with this player, even when it's negative. You give to me, and I've repaid you with far worse. Fill my heart with love for this player. So that's the first enemy to enjoying the Lord. Simply anything that gets in the way of intimacy with the Lord. It could be bitterness with another relationship. It could be the fact that you gossip. It could be the fact that you are addicted to too much entertainment. The second enemy is equally as obvious but just as difficult to address. Enemy to enjoyment, good things gone wrong. Good things gone wrong. This enemy is much more diabolical than the first because it seems so innocent, but it's so destructive. And there's, this stuff is not necessarily sin. It can be good stuff. Like, for example, let's say that you um, open up your bank statement and you look at it. That's not a bad thing, right? That's a good thing because we're, we need to be good stewards. We need to keep a budget. We need to do all that stuff. But when you open it, you realize that your spouse spent money that you see as frivolous and you're wondering how you're going to reconcile it with your budget because it doesn't fit anywhere. And there's certainly a reason to be concerned, and it should be addressed and not swept under the rug in any healthy marriage. But the thoughts start falling like dominoes in your head, and you become consumed with anxiety and anger. Your thoughts may go something like, well, what about our summer vacation now? We're never going to be able to buy a house. They're so shallow and selfish and materialistic. I knew this kind of thing was going to happen even before we got married. None of you struggle with that, though, I know. Do you see what's happened? God has been left out of the equation and connection with him has been damaged. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Even if you had all the money in the world, even if the spouse made perfect decisions all the time, it still wouldn't be enough because only Jesus is enough. You can fix your spouse, or even if you could fix your spouse, you can't fix your heart. Only Jesus can There are many enemies of enjoying God that we're not going to cover tonight, but I do want to cover one more that I think broadly covers just about all of them. Enemy to enjoyment, trading the eternal for the temporal. So a prophet named Isaiah made an observation to the people of Israel thousands of years ago when they were suffering under an oppressor named the city of Babylon. And so Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6, a voice says, cry out. And Isaiah responds to God, and I said, what shall I cry? All pe- God says, all people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So God speaks to Isaiah and says, tell the people that they're like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field, here today and gone tomorrow. It's temporary. It's disposable. But we have eternity built into our hearts, don't we? Even those who don't walk with Christ, including atheists, sometimes wonder, is this all there is? Certainly, life can't just end with the grave. We look out at creation, and it's just too magnificent for it to be just one short life and done. I want to read you a testimony here. Uh, Along those same lines, this is from uh, Pastor Bill Hybels, and uh, this is recorded by John Ortberg, and he says this. He, He worked with Bill for years. Bill Hybels was studying the Bible for a sermon in a restaurant one time. A young woman looked over and asked, why are you reading that? Bill looked back and said, and this is an exact quote, Ortberg says. Bill says, because I don't feel like going to hell when I die. Bill has a little problem expressing himself sometimes. She retorted, there is no such thing as heaven or hell. Bill thought, this is going to be interesting. He turned and said, why do you say that? She said, everybody knows that when you die, your candle goes out. Poof, that's it. You mean to tell me there's no afterlife, Bill said to her? No. So that means you must be able to just live as you please. That's right. Like there's no judgment day or anything. Right. Bill continued, well, that's fascinating to me. Where did you hear that? She said, I read it somewhere. Can you give me the name of the book? I don't recall. Can you give me the name of the author of the book? I forgot his name. Did the author write any other books? I don't know. Is it possible that your author changed his mind two years after he wrote this particular book and then wrote another one that said, there is a heaven and hell? Is that possible? It's possible, but not likely. Bill, all right, let me get this straight. You're rolling the dice on your eternity, predicated on what someone you don't even know wrote in a book you can't recall the title of. Have I got this straight? She looked back. That's right. right. Bill summarized, you know what I think, my friend? I think you have merely created a belief that guarantees the continuation of your unencumbered lifestyle. I think you made it up because it's very discomforting to think of a heaven, and it's a very discomforting thought to think of hell. It's unnerving to face a holy God in the day of reckoning. I think you made it all up. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? We have a great joy because we didn't make it all up one day we're going to see him face to face one day we're going to see jesus and that's to drive us we live for him who gives us eternal pleasures not just ones that last for a moment jesus was giving his disciples a key heads up before he was crucified he tells them that things are going to get really rough, and he also tells them that he's going to be leaving. And he says this in John chapter 16, verse 22. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. See, now we have a great enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion trying to give us cheap, saccharine, sweet substitutes. Pseudo-pleasures that really bring death and not joy. Jesus encourages them, but, but one day, I'd rather to one day no one will be able to take away our joy. So Jesus encourages them just a little later that he won't leave them alone, but that the Holy Spirit will come in and live in them, so that the unity and love that the Father and Son have will be the same unity that we have within the Trinity. Uh, Kimball, you ahead to come on up here. Uh, This is vacation season, so I'm sure many of you are looking forward to whatever trip you have in store. Uh, But have you ever noticed how productive you are right before vacation? Does anybody else identify with me there? Like just how much you get done? You just start getting serious before vacation, you know? Studies have shown that we prioritize better before vacation than any other time of year. Why is that? it's because we know we have a limited amount of time left before we're out of the loop. The energy of looking forward to a break next week allows me to work with great diligence this week. That's why psychologists will say that the buildup and planning of a vacation are actually more, have a more profound effect on our mental health than even the vacation itself. So we can be productive as that week before vacation In our day to day lives, and we can be as relaxed as we are on that vacation when we enjoy the Lord, because we are looking forward to a delightful inheritance. Our focus is on the eternal, and the enemy's goal, his desire, is to get us focused on the temporal. He's got a big bag of tricks, but they're all ancient. And we know that it's always find satisfaction in this moment on your own terms. So I know tonight we've covered just a few things, just a few hindrances to what what will uh, ultimately can provide a life-altering obstacle to God's main goal for our lives, which is for us to enjoy him forever. But I want to ask you tonight, are you willing, I I really want to ask this seriously, are you willing to do a fearless moral inventory And take those two exercises that I gave you tonight and start to uproot those things that you're going to besides Jesus for pleasure. Can you do that with those blanks? Can can you go home tonight and when you wake up tomorrow, if Jesus is blank, why do I feel so blank? And I want to have a closer, more intimate relationship with Jesus, but there's this thing that's in the way. What is that? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the author of life. You're the giver of joy. You say that eternal pleasures are at your right hand. Lord, we know that our soul was designed for pleasure. Lord, we know that your primary goal for us is not to serve you out of duty, but to serve you because to do so is sheer delight. Better than any vacation. Better than anything money can buy better than any security or satisfaction that a relationship can give us. Lord, help us see you in the good things that we see around us that you have provided. help us not try to find ultimate satisfaction in those things. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.